0: If you're also, you probably don't know that we uh, have been going through this series called By Faith, where we've been walking section by section, verse by verse, through Hebrews chapter 11. And so we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 today. We're going to be doing a little bit of back and forth. So we'll be in Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 48. Hebrews 11 and Genesis chapter 48. Now if you've been uh, with us every week, if you've been following along, you know that last week we talked about Noah. And so naturally the next person would be Abraham. And Abraham actually has the largest portion of Hebrews 11, but we're not preaching on Abraham today. We're actually talking about Jacob, uh, not because we don't like Abraham, but because we feel like there's so much to Abraham's story that we're actually doing a whole series on Abraham later this year. So instead we're going to Jacob. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Hebrews chapter 11 and kind of keep your finger there. Also with uh, Genesis chapter 48. One of the things we do here at Tri Village Church is we stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Um, would you guys stand as we read from scripture this morning? So Hebrews 11 will be in verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. And then in Genesis chapter 48, starting. In verse 8, it says, When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They're the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knee and bowed down with his face to the ground. Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has delivered me from all harm. May he bless these boys. May they be called by my name in the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. Then Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head and it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. My God, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as we look at the life of Jacob and look at this story of faithfulness that you would be here in this moment. God, I pray that these would be your words that are coming out of my mouth and not mine. Lord, if they're mine, I am wasting everyone's time here. Lord, we want you to speak through your word. Teach us from the life of Jacob. Teach us from your word. Lord, let the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, Jacob is probably one of the most relatable people in the Old Testament. His story is one that a lot of us can identify with. We can see ourselves in. We can point to it and go, oh yeah. But this account in Hebrews is so short. It's so small. It's, it's interesting. But we are going to look at, I feel like there's a lot we need to unpack to really understand Jacob's life. And so today we're going to do that. We're going to see why the author of Hebrews decided to focus on this one part of Jacob's life and not the rest. And we're also going to see what this, what that actual moment in Genesis is really talking about. So we're going to do that by looking at three things today. Today we're going to look at the faithfulness that Jacob displays by looking at the context for this faith. What is this about? What is faith? We're going to look at the confidence of Jacob's faith. And we're going to see that from Hebrews 11 verse 1. And then we're going to look at the assurance of Jacob's faith. So the context, the confidence, and the assurance. So let's start with the context. The context for faith. I feel like there's a few things we need to unpack before we can really understand why we're even in Hebrews chapter 11. Why is the author of Hebrews writing about faith? So we're going to look at that by looking at what is faith? Then we're going to talk about the, Hebrew, the, the author of Hebrews and why he wrote faith in the book of Hebrews. And then what does this have to do with Jacob and us? So first, we're going to look at why, what is faith? I'm not going to spend a whole ton of time here because Will did an awesome job preaching on this very passage two weeks ago. So if you missed it, um, you can check out our website. Um, you can look at, listen to the message online. Um, but we're just going to be more succinct so that way we can get you home. Um, so What is faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for, the assurance about what we do not see. We're going to focus on this and see how this theme, this this faithfulness is present in Jacob's life. Uh, Will, two weeks ago, referenced Philip Yancey and he said, Faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And this is what we see in the life of Jacob. It's confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients, this is what Jacob was commended for. So now that we have a working definition of what faith is, it's it's confidence with hope for assurance in what's not seen. What is, why is this in Hebrew? Why is, why is the, the author of Hebrews writing about faith? Who is the author of Hebrews? Who is he even writing to? All these things are important for us to really understand why Jacob is being brought up here. So first, let's look at the author of Hebrews. Now, scholars have debated as to who has written the book of Hebrews. No one really knows. Uh, will thinks it's Paul. Um, I don't, but that's okay. And uh, it's, it's a debate that will go on and on. We'll ask the Lord someday who wrote it. And um, But what we do know, we we don't really need to know who wrote it, but we know some things about the author that are very important. The first thing that we know about the author author is that this person was highly educated. Highly educated. Why does that matter? Well, the author used complex Greek and sentence structure that's more complex than any of the other letters in the New Testament. So we see that the book of Hebrews shows a, a deeper, more full and robust understanding of the Greek language of narrative and of proving a point than any other letter in the New Testament. What that doesn't mean for us is that Hebrews is too complex for us to understand. That's not what that means. It doesn't mean that we can't read it and understand what it's saying. What it means is that the author didn't waste words. The author was direct. The author is writing to a point to prove something. He's building upon a thesis and he's going to make that clear. So when we see this account of Jacob, it's not like he was randomly thinking, oh, let's think of a life of Jacob. That sounds good and wrote it in there as an act of faith. There is intentionality. There is focus. There is precision by the author. That's what we know about the author. The second thing is, who is he writing to? Like, who is receiving this book and this letter, and why, why talk about faith? So, the book of Hebrews, if you couldn't guess, was written to a Jewish audience. It was written to, we, it was either written to a church, a Jewish church, or a group of churches. We don't know exactly if it was specific to one or many, but we know that these, this Jewish-believing church or churches were being persecuted for their faith. So he's writing uh, to encourage, to to comfort, to compel, to to critique these these Jewish believers who are suffering for their faith. And he's doing it in a couple different ways. So there's people who are suffering for their faith and just need encouragement. He's encouraging them. This will strengthen your faith. To some, they're turning back. They're they're going, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what's happening? And they're backsliding in their faith. He's writing to convict them, to challenge them, to have faith. And he's also writing to those who are turning away, who are giving up and walking away from faith. And he's compelling them, he's pleading with them on where our faith is truly found. Which I think is really important because as we look at the life of Jacob, this will be very present or very prevalent for us. So we see who is written by, ish, who it's for. Wh- why Jacob? What, what is this? Act of faith. What is Jacob's act of faith? So when we look at the passage again, I'm going to read it for us. We see that this passage is really brief. It says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Cool. Um, when, I, when I was like found out that I was going to be preaching on Jacob, I'm like, yes, Jacob, there's so much there, you know? And then I saw this passage in the accounts of Jacob, there, there, there are five different in, in the Old Testament. This is easily the most boring. <laughs> this is easily the one that's like the, the least captivating, the least like, wow, Jacob. Um, when you even look at the, the other heroes of faith listed in the chapter, you see these awesome, remarkable acts of faith. Like Abel was killed by his brother because his offering was considered more faithful than Cain's, right? It's like tragedy, but... It's epic. You see, Enoch was carried away by God because of his faith. Noah, last week, he would build an ark in faith, We see, well, we aren't going to talk about it because we're doing Abraham later, but Abraham walked into the wilderness, not knowing where he was going, in faith. He was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac in faith. We see Moses was willing to confront Pharaoh in faith. He led the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt in faith. They crossed the Red Sea. They had the Ten Commandments. They wandered in the wilderness. And Jacob blessed his grandkids. Cool. <laughs> That's fun. So, what we learned from here is be nice to your kids, bless your grandkids. God bless you. Let's have a wonderful day. Um, so, as I was wrestling with this, I'm like, man, that kind of seems like it doesn't hold its weight in the other heroes of faith, right? But as I studied, I saw that Jacob actually has remarkable faith, and that this account specifically shows the remarkable faith. Of Jacob. It's truly incredible. So now that we've seen the context, oh, and one thing I totally forgot about is that the author of Hebrews knew that the audience had a very intimate understanding of the Old Testament. So when he brings up Jacob, it's not like they have to go, what is he talking about? They know this story. They know the story of the Torah. They know all, uh, he's he's implying that they have a deep understanding from Genesis to, to, to David, primarily. And so when we look at this, we're going to see, now that we have a working definition for what faith is, we know who wrote it and kind of why it was written to encourage, to, to critique, to compel, to convict. Um, and we see that this passage, even though it seems like it's insignificant, is truly significant. Let's look at the confidence of Jacob's faith. So we're going to be in Genesis 48 for the, for the bulk of this morning. And we're going to see the confidence of Jacob's faith. And we're going to do this by looking at Different lenses, okay? So when we approach life, when we go about life, we really interact with things, whether we like it or not, whether we think about it or not, we are wearing lenses in the way that we see the world, the way that we see ourselves, other people, the way that we see life. And so I'm going to talk about these, these two. One is I'm just going to use the, the lens of the world, okay? So lens of the world, what I mean by that is it's things that are shaped by culture, it's trends that are shaped by, by media, by, by the social norms of our day. We see and experience and we relate to world based on others around us, based on the way the rest of the world talks about things. So we have this lens of the world, okay? The other one that I'm going to talk about is the lens of faith. This is where we see others, we see ourselves, we see the world. We see God shaped through faith, shaped through his word, shaped through our experiences with faith. God. Okay, so these two key things. We're gonna look at the lens of the world and the lens of faith. So as we look at this and we talk about the confidence that Jacob has in faith, we're gonna look at how he had faith internally, the the in himself, like he saw how it changed his view of who he was, and similarly how it's gonna change the view of who we are, externally, and how he saw other people, and consequently how having other people see him, what what we care about, other people seeing seeing us. So internally, externally, and then eternally because it has to all rhyme. I'm a pastor. So um, we see how he relates to God. We see what his view of God is. We see how he sees God. So internally, how we interact with ourselves. Externally, how we interact with others and how others see us. And then eternally, how we see God. So let's look at this passage first. We're going to look at internally. And as we go, actually, I'm going to make this point. Um, the world, when we look at internally, the world has some thoughts on how we should perceive ourselves, right? We, we all live according to these standards that society kind of sets for us. So um, it, it prizes and values confidence, assertion, bravery, strength power, right? These are things that we're supposed to have like in ourselves. We're supposed to be like self-assured and, and confident and, and confident in who we are and um, I'm going to be me and I'll let you do you. You know, we just have all of these things and that's, that's what the world tells us is what we should be about ourselves, right? And we see this play out in the early life of Jacob. One of the first scenes we see in Jacob's life is that he actually cheats his older brother, his twin brother Esau, out of his birthright. So when, he, when his father dies, his share of the inheritance, he manipulates it and he gets it out of, Jacob is chasing this good life, the better, being above the best. I need to dominate this view of myself. And then a few years later, we see actually he cheats his brother again out of his blessing, out of the blessing that comes from the father, similar to the blessing that Jacob gives to his grandkids. So we see that Jacob is seeing the world through this lens of power and struggle and fight. But then we also see another thing. When it talks about Esau and it talks about Jacob, there's two very different realities about these two brothers. They were twins and Jacob technically came out later, so he's younger. But Esau is listed as being strong and a hunter and hairy, which was a good thing, I guess. So he was, he was a man's man. And Isaac loved Esau. But Jacob... Jacob was not hairy (laughs) and weak and he liked to stay indoors. Instead of hunting, he was cooking. He didn't really show forms of normal masculinity in that day. And so we see that Jacob, even though society says, be a man, dominate, be strong, go kill things and eat stuff. You know, like that's Esau, that's Esau. And that was true for Jacob's day, but Jacob was more a homebody. He, he was BFFs with his mom. Like, that's Jacob. So what happens when, when we don't live up to society's standards for us? When we don't lean into the expectations that the world has for us? What do we do with that? And we see in Jacob's life, deception, lying, and mistreatment. Clawing after, I'm going to get mine because I was dealt a poor hand, right? We can resonate with this because in some ways we all feel insecure. We all feel like we don't quite measure up to the standards of that and longing for assurance, for validation, for being content with who we are. But Jacob's perspective shifts. So when we get to Genesis 48, we see a new Jacob. We see a Jacob who's seeing himself through the lens of faith with the confidence that comes from faith. And we see it in verse 15. In verse 15 he says, Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my what? Shepherd. All my life to this day. The angel who has delivered me from all my harm. So, Jacob identifies God as his shepherd. And shepherds heard what? Sheep. Say it confidently. Come on, guys. This is morning. What do shepherds heard? There we go. So what is Jacob? A sheep, right? Um, guys, I need to tell you something in case you didn't know this. Sheep are really dumb. They're so dumb. Um, sheep are, are not just dumb. They're weak. They're, they're feeble. Uh, they're peer-driven. They, they always follow the crowd. They're fear-driven. They always run away from anything that would terrify them. They're really not an animal that someone would want to be like, yeah, I'm a sheep, like, just wouldn't really be what you want, what you want to be known as. When a sheep goes and, and leaves like its, its flock and it goes out into the wilderness, do you know what happens to it? It dies. <laughs> it can't survive on its own because it doesn't know how. Um, when you see, uh, I'm talking about domesticated sheep, and when you see sheep fall over on its back, it actually doesn't have the ability to get itself back over. It needs help. Like, sheep are kind of pathetic animals. Like, and so Jacob is identifying himself as a sheep of all things, a sheep. Jacob is either incredibly humble because he's like, guys, I'm a sheep, right? Or he's incredibly self-deprecating. I'm a sheep. Like it's, it just seems so interesting. Why would he choose a sheep? Jacob sees himself as weak, as feeble, as frail. When did that happen? That seems so different from the, the Jacob who's trying to prove himself, who is trying to deceit and lie and, and sc- claw and scratch to get ahead. Well, there's a key moment in Jacob's life where Jacob saw weakness differently. It was a moment well after he would already tricked his brother Esau. Um, he already has a family. He has a flock of his own. And so he's at this moment where he's, he's leaving his uncle Laban. He's going to go start his own life, his own fresh start. And he knows that he's about to encounter his brother Esau. Well, guess what? If you could imagine, Esau wasn't super happy with Jacob when they left. In fact, Esau wanted to kill his brother Jacob because he stole everything from him. Um, so they don't have a great relationship. So Jacob is in fear. He's afraid of what's going to happen. And he knows that he's going to encounter his brother Esau. And so there's this picture, there's this scene that happens at one night, the night before he's going to encounter his brother Esau, he sends his family and his flocks away and he's there. And what we see is it's night and he's all alone and this man comes and just wrestles him. And it's kind of weird, right? It's like, why would some random dude just up and wrestle a guy? Like who does that? But what we find out is that this man was actually God. Says the, in Hebrew says, the angel of the Lord, which, is, which describes God in, in human form. And so Jacob is wrestling with God literally. It's like the ultimate UFC fight because they're wrestling all night. There's no timer. There's no bells. They're going hard. And he's wrestling all night. And it gets to a point where um, God actually touches. It says that he touches or he, or he wounds or he dislocates Jacob's hip during the fight during the wrestling match. Seems kind of interesting, right? But Jacob doesn't let go. Imagine wrestling. I don't know if you've ever wrestled before. Um, I went to one wrestling practice and I found out it wasn't for me. <laughs> so I could not imagine wrestling with a dislocated hip. Like, whoo! Um, that just seems near impossible. So the, it, we, what we see in this picture is Jacob is wrestling with, with a dislocated hip and the, the day is starting to come and God says, you need to let go of me. And he says, no, I won't. Not until you bless me. Which seems interesting. And it can be easy for us to miss this. All throughout Jacob's life, Jacob is seeking for blessing in anything. He's seeking for blessing in his birthright. He's seeking for blessing in his blessing. He's seeking for blessing in his family, in his work. This is the first time where we see Jacob Seeking the Lord for his blessing. And what happens is God makes him weak first. We see that in his weakness. The the wild thing is that God actually blesses Jacob. He actually says that day, this is when Jacob's name is changed, not from Jacob, but to Israel. So now he's known as Israel. This is the father of the nation of Israel. Israel. And so the Lord says, I am going to make you a nation. I am going to fulfill the promises I made to your fathers and your father's father. I am going to be with you. He's clinging to God and says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. He says, I will. I will. It was that moment when he was at his wit's end, the darkest night of his life, and he clung to God, finally seeing him as the source of all Blessing. It's wild because in that weakness, in that moment, uh, we, we the next scene we see that Jacob actually walks his brother Esau, and he's limping because he's got a dislocated hip. You know, he's hurt, and through his life, he actually carries this limp, to a reminder of the weakness that it takes to depend on the Lord. And so we see through the lens of faith that the script gets flipped, and that weakness isn't the same as the way the world sees weakness vulnerability isn't the same as the world sees vulnerability. And this isn't the only place in scripture we see this. Actually, in the New Testament, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. If you'd put that on the screen, um, it says, but he said to me, this is Paul speaking about the Lord. and, And picture Jacob in this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul saying this, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness is strength in the economy of grace. And Jacob sees now that he is a sheep and that that is good. And guess what, church? We're sheep, (laughs) We are sheep. You're a sheep and I'm a sheep. And that is not, as much as it, is, as it is an insult, it is showing the flip, the role reversal in the economy of grace. Jacob's confidence in who he is, is not in himself, but in who, who God says he is. And that is a child and that is blessed. So if the first thing we see is we see um, how he sees himself, and now we're going to look externally and see how it interacts, how it shapes, how he sees others, and consequently how um, he, others see him. So in this, we see that Jacob, again, we're going to look back, and we see that the world values, uh, when, it, when it values success, when it values promise, when it thinks of people, we live in a celebrity-driven, a celebrity-crazed culture, Right? We see the wealthiest people are usually athletes, actors, entrepreneurs, right? Renovators or innovators—not renovators, but maybe Chip and JoJo. But, um, but anyway, we see uh, we see that the the best in this life are are celebrity. They they achieve a celebrity status, get verified. You know, like that's what it's about. And we have bought into this. All of us have. For those of you who post on Instagram, how many filters have you gone through? Before uh, before you posted, and how many pictures did you take to get it just right before you posted it? Right. We have this desire to be seen as put together. When you post on your family vacation, you see all the pristine pictures and everything. But the irony is, you're still dissatisfied because then you see your neighbor's vacation. You're like, "Wow, we blew it. It's all over. Like it's done." We're always looking to be seen as the best, to be seen as better than the rest. We're living in a celebrity-driven, celebrity-crazed culture. And you know what? It really isn't that different than Jacob's culture. Even though the celebrities weren't necessarily athletes, there was the power and dominance was king. And so you see in Jacob's life, his striving for power, his striving for acceptance, his striving for dominance in his life. We see this in his work ethic. He, he works tirelessly to get a wife. He works tirelessly to get a, a flock of his own. And then he goes to become independent. Because that's what it's about. I want to be seen as successful. I want to be seen as uh, uh, able to take care of myself and for my family, right? Again, we go back to Genesis chapter 48, and we see a different picture of a different Jacob who doesn't see things quite the way that we live our lives. So what we see here, we're going to look, if you guys, yeah, put this on the screen, but um, we see a, a scene, it's kind of a humorous story of Joseph Uh, coming before his father, Jacob, who's at the end of his life and he's he's going blind. He's having a hard time seeing. He really can't see. And so we get to this count in verse 12 where we see Joseph uh, placing his children before Israel, right? Before Jacob. And it says, And Joseph removed uh, the children um, from Israel's knee and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger, and crossed his arms and put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So I'm gonna uh, let me illustrate this picture for you to really understand what's happening. So a blessing that a father would give before he dies, this blessing that that we see Abraham, then we see Isaac, and now we see Jacob give, is not like a hey, I hope you have a great life, kiddo. It's more than that. It's it's actually a blessing based on a future promise of God, something that He can't actually give. So, and, and the way that a blessing would give is the firstborn culturally would get the the lion's share of the blessing. So the firstborn would be blessed in a greater way than the younger or the secondborn. And so in this instance, we see that Joseph, being a good son, takes his uh, takes his two kids to his blind dad and is like, all right, they're going to receive the blessing. So he sets it up, going, I'm going to make this easy for Jacob. I'm going to put the the firstborn to my left, so that way he just reaches out his right hand. I'm going to put the younger one over here, so he just has to go like this, lays his hand on him, and he just blesses them, right? Simple. But that's not what Jacob does. Jacob goes like that. (laughs) And then he blesses them. And what we see is that Joseph gets really upset about this. Joseph actually takes... Jacob's hand and puts them both on Manasseh and says, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. You just blessed the firstborn. This this one, Manasseh, he's the oldest. You got to bless him. He's like, I know you're blind. I get it. This is my firstborn son. And, And Jacob says, I know. I know. I know what I'm doing. In the economy of grace, it's not what the world sees as successful. God chooses the vulnerable the overlooked, the rejected, the outcast. In the economy of grace, God chooses the younger brother. And what we see in this is that this is actually following a trend of God choosing the younger brother. Not only did God choose uh, Ephraim instead of Manasseh, he chose Jacob instead of Esau. He chose his father Isaac instead of Ishmael. We even see Abel get the blessing over Cain. We see that in this economy of grace, God chooses what the world sees as weak and uses it to shame the strong. And so Jacob's blessing is a blessing of faith, not just because he's promi- he's blessing for a future declaration that he can't give, only God can. It's a grace because he is choosing to flip the entire script and he's teaching his son Joseph, no, no, no. What I've learned from the faithful God is that he's blessing the younger one. What's wild is that they're not the only younger ones who get blessed in this. Ephraim and Manasseh are considered now Jacob's sons. They actually get uh, an inheritance in the promised land. They actually get a nation of their own when, when Israel goes to the promised land. But that's not the only blessing that comes out of Jacob. That's not the only younger son blessing. Joseph is also blessed, even though Reuben was the oldest. In addition to that, Judah, from whom Jesus comes, gets the blessing that the scepter will not depart from the line of Judah. You are going to bring salvation. (laughs) The the blessing that that Jacob gives his kids is a blessing of a future hope for a future king, for a future promised land. That's the faith that we see of Jacob. It changes the way he sees others and it changes the way that he cares about others seeing himself. He sees the vulnerable He sees the the weak. He sees the oppressed. He sees the overlooked as valuable, as worth it. But then also when his son critiques him, he doesn't care. He goes, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing. You know why this is good news for us? Remember, we're sheep. We are weak, each and every one of us. We are vulnerable. We are broken. We are messed up. We are overlooked. We are weak. And in the economy of grace, there is a place for us. Nowhere would you ever find, in in, in any other religion, you see uh, man working its way, proving its way, clawing and scraping his way to God. But here in Christianity, you see God flipping it and claiming and naming the weak, those who can't do it for themselves. That's what we see here. So we see that Jacob's faith is changed internally. We see that his faith is changed externally. And now we're going to see how his faith is changed eternally. So his faith is changed eternally, the way that he sees God. And this is, is probably the most remarkable statement that Jacob makes in this entire blessing. In verse 15, it says, um, Jacob says, May the God before whom my, fathers, uh, whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my all of my life to this day, the angel who's delivered me from harm, the the wild ridiculous, awe-inspiring thing that we see is that God or that Jacob sees God as a shepherd, and that he's not only a shepherd but he's a shepherd who's been with him his entire life, through every moment. You want to know why this is remarkable? Through every moment. Jacob's life is a life marked with tragedy, with sorrow, with loss. Tim Keller, when talking about this uh, very passage, he summarized the the life of Jacob, and I'm going to share it with you because I think it really helps us see the life of Jacob and see that when he claims that God is his shepherd, really? So what we see in the life of Jacob, at birth, he was the unloved son, This caused him to go into a cycle of pleading and searching for acceptance. For pleading and searching for validation throughout throughout the majority of his life. Then he was the exploited, uh, he left to go with with his uncle and he was exploited by his uncle. He was coerced to working for over two decades for his uncle. Used for Laban's selfish gain. And then he was forced to marry a woman he didn't love. And then finally, after he finally gets to marry the woman he does love, she dies prematurely. She dies giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. This throws Jacob into tremendous grief. He then clings to his two children, Joseph uh, Joseph and Benjamin, and he becomes the ultimate helicopter parent. But then, out of jealous rage, Joseph's older brothers sell Joseph into slavery and they tell Jacob he was killed by wild animals. And this throws Jacob into a depression that he has for the rest of his life. Then he experiences famine that forces his family to leave where they live and to become sojourners in the nation of Egypt. Jacob's life is a life marked with tragedy, with upset. And you know what? It's an incredibly relatable life. Maybe you have been unloved by a parent. Maybe you have been exploited by someone that you thought you trusted. Maybe you thought you were going to find satisfaction in love and it ended short. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you have experienced seasons of drought. Jacob is saying that my shepherd and my God has been with me every moment. My shepherd and my God has been with me through all of it. Every moment. That's remarkable. And you know what? He's with you too. Further, when Keller was talking about this, he shared this story of a a minister who was a full-time shepherd before he went into ministry, and he talks about this about sheep. If you put it on the screen, the first part we really know. Sheep is a stupid animal, (laughs) and they follow one another and lose their direction continually in a way that cats and dogs do not. But even when they're found, they're never happy to be found. It's extremely difficult to round up a lost sheep and to bring it home unless you have a dog to scare it. The lost sheep rushes to and fro so that even when you find it, you must seize it and cast it down. Tie its four legs together, put its hind legs together, and then pull it over your shoulder and carry it home struggling. The sheep never feels loved when it's being loved. The sheep never feels safe when it's being made safe. Sounds like Jacob, doesn't it? (laughs) Literally wrestled down by God as a divine act of grace. Literally made safe, struggling the entire way. Church, maybe, just maybe, the suffering, the hardship that you are experiencing in your life, maybe, just maybe, it is an act of divine Love of a good shepherd who is wrestling you down to know that he is blessing you. Maybe, just maybe, we are sheep that don't know any better. Maybe, just maybe, we are wayward and lost and we need, we need a shepherd to save us. This is what we see in the story of Jacob. This is what we see in the faithfulness of this passage. This is what Jacob is attributed as being faithful. So we see the confidence of Jacob's faith is rested in this future hope that God is going to fulfill the promises he made to him and that he can extend those promises to his children. Now, we're going to look at the assurance of Jacob's faith. Jacob's faith is rest secure because his faith isn't in faith. His faith is in an object in a person. You see, the whole story of Jacob isn't about Jacob. This is a story about Jesus. And if you've been at Tri Village for a while, you go, you guys always do this. <laughs> you guys always go, this is about Jesus. It is. The entire Bible, all of this. It is all pointing to Jesus. Every moment of it. This story is a story about Jesus. And if you don't believe me, awesome. I'm going to prove it to you. Okay. So what we see here, this story is about the, the, how Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jesus is the better Jacob. Jacob was the unloved son. Jesus was forsaken by his father so that you and I would never be rejected. Jesus, or <laughs> Jacob, was the one who stole the birthright from his brother. Jesus gave up his birthright so that you and I might be heirs of the kingdom of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jacob stole Esau's blessing because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You and I have an eternal blessing, a forever home, and Jesus is preparing it for us even now. Jacob spent years working for the one that he loved, for Rachel. Jesus died so that we would be the bride of Christ. Jacob was exploited by his uncle Laban. Jesus was rejected and crucified by the very people he created. Jesus is the greater Jacob. Jacob was the wayward shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Out of Jacob came the nation of Israel. Out of Jesus, salvation is offered to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Because Of Jesus, we can have faith. What's remarkable is that Jacob had this faith and he hadn't encountered the risen Lord Jesus yet. But we, we have a resurrected Jesus, we have a risen Lord Jesus. How much more sure can we be of our faith? How much sure can we be of the object, of the author, of the perfecter of our faith? The faith of Jacob is remarkable. But church, we, we have a a faith that is assured, that is sure on the resurrected Lord Jesus. When studying this, I came across this Old Testament scholar. And he had this quote that I just think is, Really spot on. J.C. Ryle says In walking with God, a man will go just as far as he believes and no further. His life will always be proportioned to his faith. His peace, his patience, his courage, his zeal, his works, all will be according to his faith. What is the object of your faith? There was a moment when Jacob actually encountered God before God wrestled him down. There was a moment where he had a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven. And in that moment, Jesus, or Joseph or Jacob, all the Js, Jacob acknowledged that God was real, but he didn't acknowledge God as Lord. We can acknowledge that God is real but do we acknowledge him as Lord? We can encounter God. We can experience God. We can see his faithfulness in our lives, but is he our shepherd? We can walk through the motions of faith, but how far are we trusting in the author of faith? What is the object of our faith? Let's pray.